This evening's scripture reading will come from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. And to make all men see what is fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world had been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places may be known by the church and the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he proposed, Christ Jesus our Lord. Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're present tonight. We appreciate the scripture that was read a moment ago by Jordan. And we're thankful that you've chosen to be back tonight and we trust that our time together tonight will be beneficial. We're going to be looking at a number of verses in, in the scriptures, but I want to call attention to the passage that Jordan read a moment ago as it relates to the eternal plan of God and the church. Before we look at our, at our lesson tonight, I do want to just express appreciation to those of you that are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We're very grateful for your presence. We encourage you to come and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We hope that you will find us a friendly, hospitable congregation. We'd love to have you come and be a part of the work here. And we're very thankful for those that have joined hands with us in recent weeks. Tonight, we want to talk about the church. About three weeks ago, I presented a lesson on the church, and it was my intent to follow that up as you know, I was away a couple of weeks ago, and then this past week uh, began putting together some information that would really accentuate the church of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the church exists according to God's eternal plan. It was not an afterthought. Some have the idea that when Jesus came to earth, he sought to establish his kingdom, and because he was rejected by the Jewish people, he thus set up the church, and we're living in the church age. Well, biblically speaking, the church and the kingdom are often used interchangeably. And you can go back and begin looking at passages like Daniel chapter 2 and other passages that underscore this very idea. So as we talk about the church, I want to just preface everything by underscoring the fact that it exists today because God in heaven planned the church. Now there were many, many prophecies given relating to the coming of the church age, the kingdom of God. In Daniel chapter 2, you recall Daniel had the opportunity to interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that interpretation, he said, in the days of these kings, that is in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom that he was talking about was the same institution that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 3, 9 through 11. The very same kingdom that the apostle Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. So there were many prophecies given relative to the coming of the church or the kingdom of God. There was also preaching about this divine institution. In Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, you recall he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, 
He echoed the very same message in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew said that Jesus in the long ago cried out, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John and Jesus both preached the coming of the kingdom of God. Now Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, there are some of you that stand here that shall not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom, again, that he was talking about was the church, the institution that Daniel foretold of, the institution that John the Baptist said was at hand. And so, biblically speaking, we talk about the church existing according to God's eternal plan. Many prophets foretold of the coming of the church age, men like Daniel, Isaiah, Micah, Joel, and others. And then I think about the promise that Jesus made. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, based on the good confession that was offered by the Apostle Peter that he was the Son of the living God, Jesus said, and I also say unto you, that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus here emphasizing the singular nature of the institution that we know as the church, the ecclesia, the called out, the community of the saved, those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Now, in Scripture, we find that not only did Jesus promise to build the church, but the Bible tells us that he purchased it. And the price of the church was his blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So Jesus not only promised to build the church, but he bought the church. It belongs to him. He built it, he bought it, and it belongs to him. And then I think about the people who make up the church. When you look at the, when you look at the scriptures, everything up to Acts chapter 2 is pointing to the coming of the church. But once you get to the second chapter of the book of Acts, you find that the church is born. That institution that had been born and bred in the mind of God now comes to fruition. And the apostle Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. He preached the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they were pricked in their hearts, they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 tells us that about 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel on that day. In verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church is not the building. The church is the people. The church is comprised of people that have obeyed the gospel. As Paul said, they have been delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Now, that's somewhat of a foundation of what we want to talk about tonight. I want to put before you 
an illustration that I think will help to somehow set the stage for what we're discussing. I want to begin by talking about a dog and a cat. Now that may seem comical to you, but I want you to think about a dog and a cat for a minute. A dog and a cat have many similarities, don't they? I mean, they both have four legs, they both have two eyes, they both have a tail, they both have claws, paws, but there are some distinctions. There are some differences between a dog and a cat, are there not? Anybody that has a dog and has a cat knows that they are two completely different animals. A dog has been called man's best friend. Cats, in many respects, psychotic. <laughs> but just think for a minute about some of the differences. A dog can be trained, really in a relatively short period of time. Try to train a cat. You'll be working till Jesus comes, and you won't train a cat. Cats have claws that are retractable, do they not? Dogs have claws, but they're not retractable. A dog has 42 teeth. A cat has 30. Dogs are social beings, and cats are anything but sociable. In many respects, they are Loners. So those are just some of the differences, and I, I'm sure that you could come up with many, many other differences. Similarities? Yes. Differences? Absolutely. I did just a quick search on Google this past week. And in my Google search, I found that there are approximately, and this is the last count, 41,000 different denominations. That's utterly amazing, is it not? Now that would be global in perspective. 41,000 different denominations. I want to ask you a question. Was that what Jesus envisioned? You remember in John chapter 17 when Jesus bowed his head in prayer in the very shadow of the cross and he said, neither for these alone do I pray, but for all them that believe on me through their word, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, the Lord's desire. God in heaven's desire is that, religiously speaking, that we are united. And yet there are 41,000 different denominations. There are similarities among many of the different religious bodies. But there are distinctions. There are differences. I think we would all agree in that respect. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul talked about one of the problems that plagued the church at Corinth, and that problem was division. And he said the means by which you overcome division is to all speak 
the same thing. It's evident with 41,000 different denominations, we're not all speaking the same thing, are we? We're not all teaching the, the same thing. We are not all practicing the same thing. But Jesus prayed that we might be one. Paul said that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, let us walk by the same rule. The only way that I know that unity can be achieved in our world today is for us to unite under the banner of divine truth, God's Word. You remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. God's word is to be the rule, the standard, that measurement, if you please, that we are to follow. It is to be the same for everybody. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said he taught the same thing in every church. Now you just think about in the religious world today. Imagine just hypothetically, what would you think if I got up this morning and I said, you know what, you need to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and be a member of the church. And then I got up tonight and said, you know what, you don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be a member of the church. What would you think? What if I were to get up this morning and say the church was born and bred in the mind of God and those who are saved are in the church and in order for you to have a relationship with Jesus, you have to be in the church. And then I got up tonight and said, you know what, the church is not that important. You don't have to be a member of the church. I mean, all you need to do is have a relationship with Jesus and just go on your merry way. Let me tell you what, I wouldn't last very long here and rightly so. And yet, that's what happens all across the globe every Sunday. If you don't believe me, just do some investigating. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there are some that believe the Church of Christ was started by Alexander Campbell. I want to re-again emphasize the fact that Alexander Campbell did not start originate, found the Church of Christ. Alexander Campbell himself is on record as saying he founded no church, no denomination. And I think he's exactly right. You remember I cited the book of Romans. Paul wrote the book of Romans in about A.D. 57. In Romans 16, 16, the Apostle Paul said, The churches of Christ salute you. Thomas Campbell was not born until 1763. Alexander Campbell wasn't born until 1788. Thomas Campbell did not come to America until 1807. Alexander Campbell arrived in America in 1809. The Church of Christ traces its origin back to the first century. 
Now, there is no exclusive name in Scripture when it comes to the church as we know it. Now, sometimes people will say, it really doesn't matter what name you wear. There are a number of biblical names that we can wear. And I'm fine with any name that is biblical. But if it's not found in the Scriptures, then we don't need to use it. In the American Standard Version, in the 1901 edition of the American Standard Version, the word church is found 95 times. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. If you had asked somebody in the first century, what church did you belong to? They'd have said the church. What church you mean? The only church they knew about was the church that began on Pentecost Day. And then 68 times in the American Standard Version, we have a reference to the kingdom of God. 32 times the Bible speaks of the kingdom of heaven. Romans 16, 16, as I mentioned a moment ago, the churches of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible speaks of the church of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church of the living God. Those are all biblical names. And we can use those names, biblically speaking, and we ought to use those names. Why? Because they're scriptural. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus built the church, did he not? He built it. He bought it. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It belongs to him. If it belongs to him, then shouldn't it wear his name? When I talk about the fact that I am a member of the church of Christ, I'm not using that in a denominational sense. What I'm saying is I am a member of the church that belongs to Jesus. He is the one that possesses it. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. It belongs to him. It's not my church. Alexander Campbell did not found the church. I have a timeline that I want to just share with you for a minute. It's not original with me, but it was put together by a fellow by the name of Donnie Barnes, and he is deceased now, but he preached in East Tennessee. And the reason I like this timeline is because it helps to somehow clear the air with regard to when the church began and then where, when and where various denominations can trace their origin to. Now, if you go back to about A.D. 30, some would say A.D. 32, A.D. 33, you have the beginning, the origination, the founding of the church of Christ, or the church, or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the church of the living God. You can use whatever term is biblical in nature. Now, in the, in the early 1800s, and really in the late 1700s, there were men and women who began calling on people in this country to go back to the first century and simply do things as they did, to simply be New Testament Christians. And the goal on their part was to go back and to simply be New Testament Christians. They had become disenchanted with what I would call denominationalism. They saw, for example, inconsistencies 
I mentioned Alexander Campbell a moment ago. Alexander Campbell was a Presbyterian, as was his father. Alexander Campbell believed in original sin. In other words, that people are born sinners. And so he was baptized, sprinkled as an infant. As he began to examine the scriptures, he began to question the validity of his baptism. So he asked a friend or asked somebody on one occasion to give him every bit of information that he had on baptism. He studied it for about a year. In 1812, he became convinced that he needed to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. So he was baptized into Christ in 1812. He got a Baptist preacher, Matthew Luce, to baptize him into Christ. He wanted somebody that practiced what he preached. There was hesitation on the part of Matthew Luce because Alexander Campbell did not have any kind of religious experience. He simply wanted to obey the gospel. Matthew Luce consented and baptized him. I say that to simply say that in, in those days there was a strong desire to simply go back and be New Testament Christians. Now we can go back to the late 1700s. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the old Philadelphia church in Morrison, Tennessee, or around that area, traces its origin back to about 1805, some say as early as 1798. There's a congregation in North Alabama, traces its origin back to 1805. Well, Alexander Campbell and Thomas Campbell weren't even baptized into Christ until 1812. So there were people practicing New Testament Christianity in America before the Campbells ever obeyed the gospel, ever began calling people back to the principles of New Testament Christianity. So they didn't have anything to do with the founding or the origination of the Church of Christ. Sometimes people will call those of us who belong to the Church of Christ, that is to the church, Campbellites. I'm not a Campbellite. I'm not a member of the church that Alexander Campbell started. As a matter of fact, if I'm a member of a church that he started, I'm in the wrong church. I don't want to be a member of a church that traces its origin back to any man. I want to be a member of the church that I read about in the scriptures. So as I present this lesson and, and as you look at this chart, when we talk about people becoming members of the church or members of the church of God or members of the church of Christ, we're not saying you're going to become a member of the church that was started by Alexander Campbell or Barton W. Stone or James O'Kelly or Walter Scott or any other man. We're going all the way back to the first century. We're going all the way back to A.D. 30, 32, or 33. And what we're saying is we want to be a member of the church that you read about in this book that we call the Bible. That's the only church that has the right to exist. Well, how do I know that? Because Jesus is the one that built it. He's the one that bought it. It belongs to him. I have no right 
to start a church and institute my doctrines, my precepts, my commands. What I have to do is follow this book. Now somebody asked the question, why is it so imperative that we follow this book? Well, because this is the book that's going to judge us. There's not a creed on earth. There's not a catechism that has been penned. There's not a manual that has been written by any man that will judge us on the last day. Paul said we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, Romans 2 verse 2. And truth equates to the word of God because Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Can we know the truth? Jesus said you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. The truth is what's going to judge us. Jesus said in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. Listen to him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That's why it's absolutely imperative that we follow this book to the letter. Because we're going to be judged by it. When I stand before God, I want to make sure that my life is in harmony with the will of God. Now, Think with me a minute about 41,000 different denominations in the world today. Absolutely amazing to me. 41,000 different religious organizations teaching and practicing different things. Is it possible for me to encourage people to strip away the human creeds and the human doctrines that have been employed down through the ages and go back to Jerusalem and just be a New Testament Christian and encourage people to do so. You know what the answer is? Yes. Yes. That's what I am encouraging people to do. On the radio, on television, and from this pulpit and classroom. I'm asking people to simply go back to the New Testament. Now we talk about all of these different denominations and religious organizations. And there are similarities among many. And by the way, in no way would I ever impugn the motives or the sincerity of those who belong to the various religious organizations in our world today. Good people, yes. Honest, hardworking, Loving people, absolutely. Good citizens, you better believe it. So there are many similarities, but are there distinctions? And more specifically, is it possible for me to simply take the New Testament and to identify certain traits or marks of the New Testament church? In other words, can I find, let's, let's just say, that I know nothing about the church. I don't know anything about the Bible. And I begin to read and study my Bible. And I read about the church and I read about Jesus. And I read where Jesus shed his blood on the cross for my sins. And I read about the fact that Jesus promised to build his church. And that he paid for the church with his blood. And then I look around in the religious world and I see all of these religious organizations and I ask the question, well, which one's right? How do I know where to go? How do I know who to affiliate with? 
Is it possible for me, from a biblical perspective, to identify the church of the New Testament? There has to be certain identifying marks. Think about your automobile for a minute. If you left services tonight and walked out in the parking lot, and boom, start looking for your car, it's not there. And let's just say that Let's just say that you own a Chevrolet. It's a pickup truck. Four-wheel drive. Are there certain features that would stand out and would be recognizable to the police and to others regarding your truck? The answer is yes, wouldn't there be? You've got a ding here. Maybe a crease there, chip of paint knocked off here. There are certain identifiable traits pertaining to that truck. There's a VIN number. Out of all of the Chevrolet trucks in the world, yours is distinctive, is it not? I don't care if you put a thousand trucks on a lot. If your truck's on that lot, it can be found, can it not? So here's the question. Out of 41,000 denominations, can I find the church that I read about in the New Testament? The answer is yes. Am I being presumptuous? No. Is it arrogant to say I can find the church of the New Testament in my Bible? No. Remember what Jesus said, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. God is interested in truth. God wants people to know the truth, to believe the truth, to obey the truth. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3? How he, re how he received revelation from God. He said he took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So we can read and ascertain the will of God regarding the church. So what about some identifying marks? I know our time's almost gone. Well, first of all, I've got to ask the question. Who founded, who started the church? There are religious bodies dotted all across the globe that can be attributed to a single individual or maybe more than one individual. But when I look at the New Testament, I see that Jesus Christ is the founder of the church. As a matter of fact, not only is he the founder, he's the foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the founder and the foundation. If you read, if you hear, of anybody saying that they belong to a church that was started by some man, then you can just come to the conclusion, guess what? That's not the church that I read about in the New Testament. There is a large religious organization in the city of Memphis whose founder is now dead and buried in Memphis. And they'll tell you, he is the one who started their church. I don't want to be a member of a church that traces its origin back to any man. 
The second way I can identify the church. Where did it begin? In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah said that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. The church of the New Testament traces its origin not back to Rome, but back to Jerusalem. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 49? He instructed the apostles to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. In Acts 1, verse 8, he said that they would be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And he said, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Acts chapter 2, there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men, And guess what happened? You have the people who were assembled in the city of Jerusalem observing the the Pentecost, well, the Pentecostal feast, the Feast of Pentecost. And while there, the apostles were endowed with power from on high. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They preached the gospel. 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel, and the church was off and running. So the church was built by Jesus. It was established in the city of Jerusalem. What about the time? Now you can read on the chart that was above me a moment ago. The various originating dates of some of the larger denominational bodies in the world today. The church that I want to be a member of, the church that I'm a member of, began in about A.D. 30, 32, 33. It's nearly 2,000 years old. Any church that began prior to the day of Pentecost in A.D. 30, 32, 33, that church would be too old. Any church that began after Pentecost would be too new. So that's another identifying mark, another unique characteristic to the church. And then what about the terms of admission? Is it not the case that I can look to the scriptures and find out how people in the first century became New Testament Christians? On Pentecost Day, Peter said to those who were assembled, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. I want to ask you a question. What right do I have to tell anybody some other way to be saved? I know what's popular in our world today. I hear a lot of people talking about reciting the quote-unquote sinner's prayer, but I want to ask you a question. Where do you read that in the Scriptures? You see... The terms of admission into the body of Christ in the first century and each and every step equally important, beginning with faith, and faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, and then to repent of sin. The people on Pentecost Day, they were guilty of crucifying the Son of God. And so Peter said, repent. And then to confess with our mouth, that we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then we are immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Why? So that our sins might be remitted. 
You see, Jesus in Mark 16, 16 placed belief and baptism before salvation. Did Jesus know what he was talking about? All authority, all power has been given unto him in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. God the Father said we're to hear him, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means you do it by his authority. Peter was speaking by the authority of Almighty God. He was endowed with the Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost Day, he said, here are the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Here's what you need to do. Did they believe in Jesus? Absolutely. They'd crucified him. He said, you need to repent and be baptized. Why? So that your sins might be forgiven. Saul of Tarsus. You remember when Ananias got to him? He had been praying. If he had been saved while praying, why then would Ananias say, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty-two sixteen. Salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Where we differ with many people in the religious world is how a person gets into Christ, how a person becomes saved. When I tell people what to do to become a child of God, the authority that I have been invested with is this book. I'm just telling people what the king said. I'm just his messenger. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. I don't have the right to dictate the terms of admission into the body of Christ. All I have the right to do is tell people what the Son of God said to do. So, the Bible says baptism stands between the sinner and salvation, Mark 16, 16. The Bible stands between the sinner and the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. The Bible says that baptism stands between the sinner and the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. And then very quickly, there are a lot of folks in the world today say, you know what, it really doesn't matter if you're a member of the church. You don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. You can have a relationship with Jesus without any kind of affiliation with the church. Let me tell you what, that may make a good speech, but that's not biblical at all. If you want to be saved, you have to be in Christ. And the only way to get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Galatians 3, verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Why are we baptized into Christ? So that we might appropriate the blood of Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4. If you're not in the church, you're not among the saved. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Now somebody might ask the question, what's the body? He's the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Colossians 1.18. And the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23. So when you hear somebody tell you, you don't have to be a member of the church to go to heaven. What church am I talking about? The church that is referenced 95 times in the New Testament. The church of God referenced one time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The church of Christ referenced in Romans 16.16. 16. The church of the living God referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. There are some more identifying marks I want to share with you, but I don't have the time to do that tonight. And I would hope and pray that if you have questions 
about what has been said tonight that you'll come to me and ask me and I'll be happy to answer them to the best of my ability. If I don't have the answer, I'll do my best to find out the answer. And you can not, not only come to me, but you can come to Billy or Jared or Brother D.O. or Brother Tim or Brother George. We'll be more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Because you see, we're interested in what the Bible teaches. It matters. If you're here tonight and you're not a New Testament Christian, could I ask you to weigh carefully what you've heard and ask the question, is it biblical? Look, if what I've said is biblical, then by all means you need to obey it. If what I have said is not biblical, then discard it, reject it, because that's what the Bible tells you to do. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, would you come home? Would you do like the prodigal son and come back? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?